Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 307 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. This episode is brought to you by Red Letter Challenge and the High Impact Workplace. Plus, don't fast forward because I got some incredible details for you on how to win a really cool prize to celebrate our 10 million download giveaway. So I am so excited to have John Ortberg back on the podcast. He is a recurring guest And every time we have him on the show, he ends up being one of the top most downloaded episodes of the year. Now, this one's kind of fun because it's a little bit different. John actually interviews me, but there's a lot of John in the interview. And uh, with his permission, this is one of the launch episodes from his brand new podcast called What Were You Thinking? It's a great podcast. I have been encouraging John for a while. We've been talking back and forth about him doing one. And I love the premise. So uh, the premise of John's podcast, What Were You Thinking? And by the way, if you haven't heard about it or you haven't subscribed, go and do that right now. Wherever you get your podcast, just search John Ortberg. It'll pop up. It's called What Were You Thinking? And um, he talks with not just church leaders, but influential thinkers, leaders, writers, and personalities who share the light bulb moment that changed the trajectory of their lives. And John's kind of your guide for that podcast. It's going to be fascinating. He's got... Uh, I think one of his first guests is the guy who created Apple stores. Like, yeah, all the stores that you know as the Apple store. Yeah, he created that and a lot of other things. So it's going to be a fascinating show. You can get that anywhere you get your podcast. And then John, very humbled, interviewed me for his show. And so I said, hey, can I put that on my podcast? He's like, sure, which is really nice. But you do get a lot of John in this one, which I really appreciate. So Uh, Stay tuned for that. I'm super excited for that. And um, yeah, hey, we got a 10 million download giveaway I'm going to tell you about in a second. But in the meantime, as you're planning out your 2020 content calendar for your church, what about doing a 40-day done-for-you campaign? You know how that pressure of preaching just is like, "Eh, yeah, every seven days it comes around? Well, there is a new turnkey 40-day campaign called the Red Letter Challenge based on the teachings of Jesus. And if you're a pastor or a senior leader in a church, you can use that for the whole church. Like your sermons are done for you, graphics, design, the whole deal. You can use it for small groups. There's a kids component to it. So far, 60,000 people have completed the Red Letter Challenge and many, many churches. And they often see growth. Um, Small groups grow by an average of 40% during the Red Letter Challenge. So you can go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry to get more information. You'll get some great discounts. Copies and packages start as little as 10 copies right up to a thousand. So whether you're a small church, small group, or a very large church, they can take care of you. Just go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry to learn more. And then uh, John and I, while we were hanging out uh, doing this interview in Menlo Park, which is right where Facebook is, Silicon Valley, we got talking about the workplace. And, you know, one of the challenges that I think a lot of leaders face, because I talk to leaders all the time, and they're like, you know, I just, it's really hard to attract and keep high capacity leaders. And you look at innovative workspaces like Facebook or Google or anything pretty much in Silicon Valley, And you can see some different processes. Now, I talk to leaders outside the valley all the time. And here's what they say. You know what the problem with young leaders is? Uh, They think they know everything. They don't want to work hard. They're lazy. They're entitled. And they listen to one podcast and they think they're an expert. Now, listen, I realize most of you who are listening, you're in that demographic. Okay. I don't believe that. But I talk to you as listeners and you know what you say? Well, the problem with my boss is he's inflexible. He doesn't want to change. He's not listening. And uh, yeah, I'd rather start my own thing or jump to another company that pays me better or gives me some flexibility. There's a lot of tension in the workplace these days. And how do you navigate it? That's why I'm super excited about introducing the High Impact Workplace. It's my brand new course, just opened up for registrations for the very first time this week, all brand new content. And it's all about how to attract and keep high capacity leaders who can really do anything they want these days. In in five years, seven years, the gig economy will be 50% of the economy. So uh, you'll learn in the course why eight to four doesn't work anymore. 
I'll also show you how to identify the currencies that actually motivate young leaders because I have led a company and churches full of young leaders and create a workplace environment in which boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, and Gen Z all thrive. If you're curious, head on over to thehighimpactworkplace.com where you will find some amazing introductory pricing and a lot of bonuses along the way and registrations only open for a few more days. We're just opening the window. It's going to close quickly. So head on over to get it at this pricing at thehighimpactworkplace.com. And then guys, yeah, we're there. 10 million downloads. If it hasn't happened already, it will. On the day it happens, we're giving away $1,000 worth of Starbucks in a 24-hour window. And uh, if you missed that, don't worry, we got you covered because you got another week to go to leadlikeneverbefore.com slash 10 million and register for the grand prize because you, the listener, have made this, this podcast, really. I mean, this has so exceeded my dreams. We're going to select five of you who enter and fly you into Nashville, one of my favorite cities, in 2020 for an overnight trip, some coaching time with me, and there's going to be five of you that we select. We're going to have a good time. We're going to treat you well. All expenses paid. Trip to Nashville. Leadership development. Um, personally, in the room with me. That's to celebrate 10 million downloads. So head on over to leadlikeneverbefore.com slash 10 million for more. And in the meantime, now uh, the conversation John Ortberg and I had together uh, for his podcast, which I hope you will subscribe to. What were you thinking? Here's John and me. Carrie, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you on. I'm so glad for folks who are listening to us to get to know you better. Uh, I can't wait to tap into your thoughts around leadership and what it is that makes life sustainable and why that seems to be so difficult. Uh, I have to start by telling you something. I'm not sure I've ever told you this before. What's that? Uh, Way before I met you personally, I knew about you because you wrote a little book about Moses and change. Oh, yeah. And how do you lead a church through change and not destroy it and uh, not kill yourself? And I'm at a Presbyterian church that's almost 150 years old, so change (laughs) navigation is like a huge issue. And we actually had all of the elders read through that book, and you talked about concepts like don't mistake volume for... Oh, yeah, velocity and don't mistake loud for large. Yes. Uh Moses was a Presbyterian. Did you know that? I was not aware of that before. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, Canadians know things that somehow (laughs) are not accessible to anybody else. So anyway, I was a huge fan of yours way before I ever met you. All I knew was you had a name that had many, many vowels in a row, and I had no idea how to say it. (laughs) Uh, And and, I have admired you from a distance. And uh, now watching your work, not only in the church, but as a writer and uh, host of a podcast that has huge impact, uh, has meant that I have just benefited a ton from you and your thought, your work, and your spirit. So I'm really grateful that you would come on. Thank you. Uh, John, it's still a little surreal for me, as you know. We've gotten to know each other over the last few years. But, I mean, I was reading your books when I was starting out in ministry in my 30s. (laughs) When I was two years old. When I was two years Uh, old, John. 60 years ago. No, uh, I mean, I, I was one of the millions who have benefited from your leadership, your wisdom, and your counsel. And to actually be sitting here at the beginning of what will be the better part of a week with you and Nancy and your church, and, you know, this isn't the first time. It's still, uh, I've never taken this for granted. So thank you. It's a joy to be with you. Well, uh, it's very, very mutual. And uh, what I want to do uh, kind of as we get started is for you to talk a little bit about your life before you got into church leadership. We're going to get there, but uh, uh, you had a very interesting entree. When you were eight years old, you made a really key decision. Uh, And this podcast is called, What Were You Thinking? The idea is that you're only one thought away from a changed life, and it's often uh, very impactful for people to try to identify what were those key thoughts that most shifted their life. Mm-hmm. So walk our listeners through what happened when you were only eight years old and you were thinking about your life trajectory. Yeah, it's the most bizarre thing because I don't think, I mean, if you look, my mom, she kept all the stuff that moms keep, right? So if you go back over my, I don't know what you call it, childhood book or something, but you know, in kindergarten, I wanted to be a baseball player, which had no future because I have no coordination, no skills. <laughs> I'm not athletic. And, uh, And then I wanted to be an astronaut or all the things little boys do. But when I was eight, uh, I remember, I think we were coming back from like Cub Scouts. 
And it was in a church basement. And I remember walking home uh, to our house, going into the den. It was the 1970s when everybody had a den and telling my mom and dad that I wanted to be a lawyer when I grew up. Now, I have no recollection of like how or why. No lawyers in the family? No lawyers in the family. No, I, I don't think I was watching a TV show. You I didn't. just wanted to sue people. <laughs> Which is why we're here, John, actually, on that <laughs> yeah. note. On that note. Yeah, it's the most bizarre thing. And, you know, looking back on it, there's so many twists and turns. So talking about key decisions, yeah. a couple of things came out. of that. First of all, I did that. I went to the law school of, of my dreams. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to go to law school, I'll get into the best one I can in Canada. And uh, I think the best law school in Canada is Osgoode Hall. That's where I went. That's where I graduated from. But a couple of things happened in that. First, I have three university degrees. Law school just about crushed me. I went from a straight A undergrad in history and political science, which really isn't that demanding. I mean, if we're going to be totally honest. You just make stuff up and you get A's. Okay. <laughs> but then you go to law school, it's case method. And it was, you know, that law school goes back to 1832. It kicked my butt. And so that was really good because a lot of people say, because in my writing, what I do now, um, my blogging, my books, uh, speaking, uh, leadership training, they're like, how do you think the way you think? Well, that goes right back to law school. I mean, you, wow. you just study hundreds and hundreds of cases. They give you 800 pages of reading and if you don't die and you pass, you get a degree. Uh, but the other great thing that came out of law school was my wife. Um, we met in first year and uh, fell in love. I fell in love with her first. I noticed her first. She was a reluctant convert. But uh, we got married in the middle of law school. And here we are almost 30 years later, so still you together. you and Tony were both trained as lawyers. Yep. Your arguments must just be fascinating. Oh, that's another podcast for another day. Who I, usually wins? Well, she does, <laughs> to be really honest. I thought I won for many years. Yeah. And then I realized when you, an argue, when you win an argument with your wife, you actually lost. Yes. So uh, I, I tried to do a better job of just letting uh, her, <laughs> not, not putting my views across. And I also realized that cross-examining someone you're married to is a really bad idea. I have a very good friend who's a psychologist and he says, uh, in a relationship, anytime one person loses an argument, the relationship loses. A hundred percent. But I that's agree. what therapists say. Lawyers never say that. So <laughs> that's it right. takes a while to learn that. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, you look at a, at a decision, what was that? And if you believe in the sovereignty of God, which I do, you know, what are those promptings that shape yeah. who you are? And, and so I go back to eight-year-old me, and maybe there was a direct trigger, but it's, I never knew what it was. It's been lost to me. No idea, but my goodness, how helpful that has been in terms of a, a pivotal turning point in my life. For folks who are listening to us, this is a podcast for people of all faiths, no faiths, but faith is a prominent role in it. Yeah. And that question of how do you discern uh, what's the right decision or what God's will is for your life is such a fascinating one. I was reading a while ago a guy named Andrew Steen who's a he's actually a physicist in Cambridge and a person of faith hmm. and he talks about how physics informs the way that we think about God and theology and in the 17th century uh, Newtonian physics the universe is like a giant machine so thinking about God and his sovereignty in a pretty mechanical way kind of made sense everything is cause and effect uh, now with the law of indeterminacy reality looks so much different hmm. And he says it actually fits the story of the Bible better because the God of the Bible is a God of improvisation. Isn't that interesting? And he just finds this motley crew of people from Israel. Yep, I can use them. <laughs> this nomad, yep, I can use them. And I actually, maybe because I'm such a pee on the Myers-Briggs, I find that quite encouraging, just thinking about whatever has gone on in my background. Uh, it's part of the mastery of God, not that he plots things out in a mechanical way, but like a brilliant jazz artist, yep, I can incorporate that. Yep, I can incorporate that. And so your uh, tug in the direction of law and interest in learning how to think really well, how to master that craft was something that would end up being used in your life, although you couldn't have known it. No, you couldn't have known it. I'll quote another theologian I've been studying, Joe Walsh. Do you know that name um, from the Eagles? Uh, extremely, I do know the Eagles. extremely. I, I made it through college listening <laughs> you to their greatest the Eagles. Hits. Desperado. So, yeah, Desperado. Hotel California. 
There is a fascinating documentary. It's just fascinating in so many ways called The Eagles. I don't know that it's still on Netflix, but when it came out, I watched it. And Joe Walsh, Joe Walsh was pretty hard on himself. Let's put it that way. And uh, killed a few brain cells along, along the way in the 70s and 80s. I think he's been clean and sober for 25 years or something. But when he was being interviewed about it, he, he, he quoted, I think, another philosopher, and it came out as only Joe Walsh could say it. He said, um, when you look back on it, our whole career was just chaos and a left turn and a right turn and arguments and looks completely unpredictable. But now when I look back on it, he says it looks like a beautifully written poem. Wow. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in that. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Because when I was 16, another pivotal moment, walk into a radio station and I say, hire me. And they do. And so I spent eight years in broadcasting. Oh, wow. Again, the weirdest prompting. But that goes back to when I was 12. And I still remember in this case exactly where I was. We were making a left-hand turn onto Highway 12 from King Street or William Street, actually, in Midland, uh, heading home. And I'm listening to the radio as we always did. It was the only thing on in your car in probably the 80s or 70s or whatever that was. And I remember thinking for the first time, you know, as you sort of realize these things at 10 or 12, oh, that's a real person. Like somebody's actually sitting behind a microphone uh -huh. in a studio in Toronto where we live near saying something. And, and then I thought, how do you become one of those people? And so I walked into the radio station when I was 16 and I said, hire me. And they gave me a job. Wow. And I spent eight years in radio in my hometown and then Toronto. And now I'm a podcaster and a public speaker and drifted toward the courtroom side of law. So again, those really strange promptings, right? Like what About was once that? every four or eight years. Yeah, exactly. Cicada-like existence. Uh-huh. So, so eight years old, uh, law, 12 years old, radio broadcast, and then you hit 24. Mm -hmm. And there's another turning point. And really what has felt like a pretty remarkable trajectory for 16 years, all of a sudden gets challenged. Everything moved toward law. Yeah. And I was pretty excited. I had, I had gotten more serious about my faith after sort of drifting away in my late teen years in my early 20s and was trying to figure out how do you practice ethical law? But that's what I wanted to do. So I found a firm that I really liked, loved the partners there. And I was 24 years old. It was an August afternoon. You know, I'd been seven, eight hours in the office. It's, you know, got there right after dawn and 3.30 or four, I'm folding up a file, kind of ready to think about heading home and um, have this vision. And I'm wide awake. I'm not nodding off, I'm wide awake, but I have a vision of me at age 44, 20 years in the future wildly successful. It's like a daydream, except it felt like it just got dropped on me. Wildly successful in law and divorced and miserable and unhappy and morally bankrupt. Wow. So successful on the outside, had completely lost my soul on the inside. And my interpretation of that vision in that moment was law's not for me. I don't know why that was my, like, I'm not going to practice law. This isn't going to be it. And then I was trying to figure that out. It was the weirdest thing. These things do not happen to me yeah. very regularly. I'm not, even though I'm a Christian, would call myself a Christian. I don't hear from God every day. It's not like, you know, go to the grocery store and buy the tuna. I don't hear that stuff. So, I mean, you know, I'm trying to be faithful. So this is a very unique occurrence in my life. And of course, I don't trust it. I'm, I'm biased to be suspicious skeptical against and, that yeah. stuff and skeptical. So I go into the library of the law firm just to think about what happened. And this is in my hometown in Midland, Ontario. And I, I look out the bay window and down the street, first street, I can see the church. And I hear this prompting, again, not part of my wiring and the prompting. It's almost an audible voice, but nobody else would hear it is like, you should be in there. And the only part of my home church I could see were the offices and the pastor's study. And I'm like, Really? So then Tony and I, my wife and I, we were dating. This is between first and second year law. We were staying at my parents that summer. Went to pick her up at her work. We're driving back to my parents' place for dinner. So we've been dating for nine months. We've never talked about ministry. And she turns to me on the way to my parents' house and says, you ever thought about going into ministry? And I'm like, "Wow, you'll never believe what happened at the law firm today. Wow. And that started a conversation. And I spent years trying to like, no, that can't be right. That can't be right. But you know. Was she stunned when you told her what had been going on with you? Or yes did she expect no. she Because when she was a little girl, 
she told me she always had a feeling she would be married to a pastor and he would have like blondish hair, like light facial features. And, you know, here she is dating this redheaded, blue-eyed guy. And yeah, so it didn't really surprise her. But yeah. the fact that we had never talked about it and she asked me on that day, like that, that and, and again, this is not my life. This is not how I live. Uh, so that was a really extraordinary turn of events. My wife never thought about being married to a pastor and I don't think would acknowledge it even to this day. Even to this day. Yeah. What does John do? We're not sure. Yeah. He yeah. writes books. Well, we she, she would basically kind of say, what in the world does my spouse's vocation have to do with my identity? So, <laughs> That's a great uh, question. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's so fascinating too. I was talking uh, not long ago, did another episode of this podcast with a guy named Gary Haugen, who you yeah. will know, who's yeah. the head of International Justice Mission. And he also went to law school. Uh, he couldn't get into the best one in Canada, so he went to a place called Harvard. Oh, he went US, there. Where okay, yeah, we, a lot we, of people we talked to them occasionally. Make it in Canada, and uh, it was the opposite direction for him. The calling was into law, but what he discovered it was quite similar. Is a very deep sense of I want to help bring justice to people who don't get any, and it was just a thought like that that led him there. For you, you were in the same place. The thought led you the opposite direction. It was, nope, this will lead you down the wrong path. You ought to be in there. But in both cases, there was quite a, a vivid thought at a pretty early age, not understanding most of the implications that became the direction. Well, and that's so interesting, right? The, yeah. the story that your life gets woven into, because people used to ask me, particularly in my first few years of ministry, so I'm serving in this local church, small church, right? And they're asking me, do you ever use your law? And my initial answer was, no, I never use my law. Like I'm not negotiating contracts or suing people or in court on a regular basis. So I never not use e Not it. even the elders. No, no, we tried, we tried, but you know. And, uh, and then my answer over the last 15 years or so has been, yeah, I use it every day. Yeah. And again, not in court, but it trained, you read the scripture differently. You read people differently. You think about issues differently based on your training in the same way if you were trained in accounting or you were trained in engineering or you were trained in um, some other discipline you would you would see the world differently so i do think it 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 i think it was part of a plan that i was completely unaware of along the way i, I resonate with that a lot my training was actually in psychology and so i got a phd in clinical psychology thought i would become a therapist Hated doing therapy, wasn't any good at it. People would get less healthy the more they saw me <laughs> and ended up going into church work. So I don't use my psychology background, but I use it every day. Of course you do. So. It's in your writings, it's in your preaching, it's in your speaking, for uh, sure. And, and this gets into something that as we talked ahead of time, Carrie, you said you're thinking about a lot these days uh, when we think about vocation, life direction, uh, what do you want to give yourself to? It has to do with what makes a life energized and sustainable and um, uh, fulfilling. And you've ended up on this very interesting journey where I think probably almost everybody listening will know that uh, Carrie hosts a podcast that's now had 250. It's got about 10 million downloads. 10 million downloads. How many episodes? Uh, 300. 300 episodes and uh, focuses on leadership uh, quite broadly defined so that I think almost anybody who wants their life to have impact would find uh, your podcast really, really helpful. But what that means is you talk about people of impact, marketplace, education, uh, church, faith-based organizations, thought leaders, all kinds of people who are pretty high impact personalities. As we were talking, you've discerned a kind of a pattern. We think of leaders as high energy, high octane, take the hill, charge forward kind of people. But you said quite consistently in conversations, issues like fatigue, uh, burnout, exhaustion, sustaining motivation, and just plain getting tired uh, is, a, is a subject that seems to recur over and over. Um, uh, how have you found those themes emerging? Like how prevalent are those issues of burnout and fatigue? Uh, are, how often are you seeing that in the leaders that you talk with? Oh, it's almost um, universal, yeah. I would say. 
you know, when you're on the outside looking in or you're 25 years old, you think, oh, all these successful people, they're successful because they don't have any struggles, right? Yeah. They're, they're just really gifted, really talented. They work hard, they hustle, and therefore they succeed. And they must not have the struggles that I have. They don't get tired. They don't, you know, argue with their spouse. They, they don't struggle with identity or purpose or any of that. And then of course, you know, I've had the great privilege over the last decade plus of meeting a lot of the people I used to read or admire or listen to. And you realize when you get to know them as people, oh, they've all got that story. Mm. And that sometimes their struggles are more remarkable or more difficult. And one of the ones that almost everyone moves into is uh, the end of what they can accomplish. That there is, and for some, sometimes that's spiritual. Um, you know, in my case, uh, there was a lot of ambition, a lot of drive. Usually the people who end up writing books or leading organizations, companies, churches are relatively driven people. That's just how it goes. That's the profile. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at the end of my 30s, I burned out completely. And uh, some of that was just physical fatigue, but a lot of it was just emotional and relational stuff and just junk that I didn't figure out particularly well. And that is a, that is a deeply universal theme to the extent that most people, if they don't have a burnout story, there is a pivot that happens where they really, really struggle with, um, with the limits of what they can do. You know, they get, they get tired, they get exhausted, they end up um, realizing they have to delegate more yeah. or their marriage falls apart or almost falls apart or their kids end up hating them. And so it's that interior journey that's really on my radar, particularly over the last 15 years, because I almost blew it. I almost, you know, what's so funny is at 24, that vision that I had was of me as a lawyer. Being, and I thought that was about law. Ah. And now I look back on that a decade later, I'm 10 years past 44. And I'm like, oh, the, no, that was about me. That, 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 was, that could have been me in law. That could have been me in ministry. It was almost me in ministry. You know, I've kept my marriage. We have a great relationship with our kids. Um, you know, it's not without its challenges, but, you know, we we're in that place. But man, I was a hair's breadth from seeing it collapse. I remember when I first decided to go in the church ministry, one of my thoughts was, well, at least if you do this, you kind of get spiritual health and maturity thrown in. <laughs> so it's like, may not make a lot of money, may have a lot of challenges, but you know, at least I got that going. At least me, you got that. Nice. And then, oh, wow. Not wow. so much. No, no. You know, spiritual health is often a, a casualty of ministry and yeah. leadership because it's inherently confusing because what you do is who you are. And we'll be talking about this later this week when I gather with your team. And uh, ministry, I think, is the perfect storm. And it's so easy to lose your soul because, well, I would say fundamentally, who am I? I'm Carrie. I follow Jesus. That's my own personal profession of faith. Um, but wait a minute, I do Jesus for a living. Yeah. So it's my paycheck. You know, it feeds my family. It buys groceries. Um, and, and it's also my identity. And then, you know, I think one of the traps that got me, John, was, oh, so working for God must make, must earn me points of some kind. And of course, you're not having this dialogue out loud. Yeah. This is all going on in the background, but it must earn me points. And oh, to not work harder probably is unfaithfulness. And so all through my 30s, I cheated my family. And it was just more people as our church grew, more people equals more hours and more success equals more accolades. And I was winning at church, but losing at home. And I've realized when you're winning at church and losing at home, you're losing. Yeah. That, that That is a temporary victory, a pyrrhic victory, an empty victory, but it's not really a victory. And it, it was inherently confusing. And so I've been able to disentangle some of that over, over the last decade. And then a lot of that is trying to figure out, okay, how do I live in a way today that will help me thrive tomorrow? Because I was, I was living at an unsustainable pace. And it's so weird. Because I look at what, when I burned out 13, almost 14 years ago, what I was leading then is a fraction of the size of what mm -hmm. I'm doing today. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't doing a podcast. I hadn't written any books. Uh, um, our church was a third of the size that it is today. You know, so I look, my capacities expanded greatly, um, but also my renewal has deepened very, very, and almost to a daily, like, you know, you, you have a late night or a, a bad day or something, but recovery is quick. And before I was just like at this, 
flat out pace that, you know, the, that was not going to end well. There's a, a book that's come out last year too by Steve Cuss, Managing Leadership Anxiety. Oh, I got to read that. And uh, he has a statement in the first chapter where he says, uh, part of the foundation of this book is the premise that burnout is more a matter of anxiety and relational isolation than, bur- than workload. Oh, yeah. Burnout is more a matter of anxiety and relational isolation than workload. That resonates. That resonates. And I thought uh, there's profound implications if that's true, because uh, uh, I think often for those of us that are involved in leading organizations, when we hear about burnout, uh, especially in the system with the staff that works uh, with us, our first thought and everybody's assumption is it's about workload. And so we just need to reduce people's workloads and then they will have margin and not experience burnout. But if it's true that mostly burnout is about anxiety and uh, relational isolation rather than workload, you cannot reduce workload your way to solving burnout. That's interesting. You know, I read another stat. I'm, I'm writing on this for my next book. So I'm, I'm going to have to look at Steve Cuss because we're not finished the, the yeah. final manuscript. But there was another stat I ran across in my research that was fascinating to me because, you know, all of us driven people, we all claim to work 80 hours a week, 100 hours a week. And they actually did a study of people who claim to work 80 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And the people who claim to work 80 work more like 60. Ah. The people who work 60 actually claim to work 60 usually work more like 40. So it's, it's interesting how we exaggerate in our mind. I think technology, and I'm a big fan of technology. I have, you know, all the devices, that kind of stuff. But I think technology has made it more complicated because we're never really on and we're never really off anymore. You know, the office is something we used to go to and now the office goes to us. Yeah. And that is really difficult because as a CEO or as a founder or an entrepreneur or a pastor, you got 11 inboxes and you're available 24 seven. And this device that you're using to figure out where you're going to go for dinner with your wife is the same device that your team is emailing you on. And that's made it really confusing. But ironically, as that has gotten worse, I've gotten a lot better at managing all that. And, uh, you know, that, but because I think personal health impacts everything you do. And after I burned out, I'm like, wow, that was so painful. I almost didn't make it back. You know, I got into some suicidal ideation in the summer of 2006 it got extremely dark and it was a long clawing out of that deep pit. And I thought, I never want to go back. And I, so, you know, a decade and a bit on the other side, I haven't. But it's funny because I think the more you dig into your own soul and into your health and into your rhythms and into, okay, well, why was I working so hard? Who was I really trying to please? How... I realized in the midst of that, near the PhD in psychology, I had a performance addiction. And somewhere in my childhood, I had equated love with performance. That if I did well, if I got good grades, if uh, you know I was the smartest kid or the funniest kid or whatever, that that would bring me more love, that that would get me noticed. And of course- Are you saying you don't think these things are true? Well, apparently not, John. Ah. I'm learning, I'm learning. <laughs> Yeah. That's not how it works. You're a three on the Enneagram? Uh, a lot of people think I am. I'm actually an eight. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what okay. are you? I'm three. Are you three? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I'm an eight. So yeah. on a good day, yes, it's wonderful. I'm Martin Luther King. On a bad day, everybody dies. <laughs> I'm Stalin. So yeah. Uh, yeah, there's bodies everywhere. So I've learned, you know, that, okay, health is going to be really, really important for me. Yeah. And I don't know who said this. I thought it was Andy Stanley. I thought it was John Maxwell. Uh, apparently neither of them. But I, by the time this race is over, I want the people closest to me to be the people who are most grateful for I me. think it was Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight? No, it's oh, a joke. Okay. It's not Bobby <laughs> Sorry. Knight. Right. Bobby Knight was a basketball coach who would not be likely to have said that. Said anything? Yeah. Okay, you yeah. can tell how much I know about sports, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I asked Andy. He said it wasn't him. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I, I like, and, and the opposite was true. I had people who sat in the back row or in an age of social media, you know, there were people who lived thousands of miles away who thought you were awesome when your wife didn't want to be in the same room with you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now in this age of social media, everybody's an influencer. Everybody's got people that they can impress who they'll never meet. 
I actually want the, I don't care. I want to care less about what the crowd thinks mm -hmm. and more about what my kids think. And not because I want them to think well of me, but because I want the relationship to be, to be healthy and good and real and the friendships deep and the team that I actually work with day to day and have to put up with me day to day to want to work with me day to day. When you were at the deepest point of depression, uh, thoughts of harming yourself, uh, did Tony know, was she aware? How, how did that affect your relationship? What was that journey like? It was a tough time for both of us because um, she was going through her own stuff at the time, but she was amazing. She prayed for me. She gave me space. She gave me grace. She kept telling me it was going to be okay. Um, and I look back on that now because she was not in a good place and how she had the grace to be able to do that. I don't know. And I had a few friends who kept knocking at the door yeah. and praying with me and encouraging me. And like, you know, the, the whole support system, I was my own worst enemy. I mean, the whole support system was there. We're all our own worst enemies. <laughs> yeah. oh, yes. Uh, and I remember there was one day where I was uh, driving home. And so my, everyone's got their path that, you know, if, if, and, and, suicidal ideation was a, was a brief episode in my life. It wasn't something I struggled with. I also realized there's probably listeners who struggle with it regularly. So I don't, I don't want to make light of it, but my thing was, cause I don't own weapons. And I thought, well, you know, knives, they're probably not very sharp and it would be, you know, horrible. Uh, I was, I'm going to drive my car really fast into a cement bridge. That was it. And I remember having that thought. It was very, very intense. And I didn't, obviously, pulled off the highway to head home. And then I thought, oh my gosh, this, this is like all in your head. There's nothing wrong with you. Like you have a beautiful wife waiting for you at home. Yeah, objectively, if you look you at your life. You have two boys. Yeah. You have a church that loves you. What is wrong with you? And that was the kind of slap on my face. That was the, the, the bucket of cold water. That it didn't solve it. I mean, it didn't go away overnight, but it was like, oh yeah, that was probably the beginning of, of a turnaround. And now looking back, like it just seems so irrational, but I'm so thankful I didn't quit. I had no idea what was ahead. I didn't, you know. Yeah. Well, and as we're having this conversation, you may well know there's a, a pastor, quite a high profile person in ministry down in Southern California that just committed suicide yeah, within Jared. the last month or so. Yeah, I interviewed him for my podcast. And uh, uh, mental health, emotional health issues for many, many of us in ministry are uh, often very vital. It can often be difficult for people in ministry to reach out to get help because we'll feel like Jesus ought to be enough. I should just have enough faith. Oh yeah. When I was going to grad school and I started in the late seventies, very often there was a lot of suspicion about the whole field of psychology and therapy because it was thought to be uh, uh, somehow in opposition to scripture or in opposition to faith. Uh, and you still hear those kind of thoughts in certain circles. So I would say anybody who's listening to us that is struggling with depression, struggling with thoughts of hurting yourself, uh, to see somebody, to see a well-qualified professional, to make sure that you don't let your embarrassment or uh, sense of shame force you to stay hidden in the shadows, to step into the light is God's will for you is a good thing to do. And I hope you do it. I agree. I agree. Just tell someone today yeah. how you're feeling. Yeah. And, you know, you really can't see. I remember how dark it got. I, I had no idea that right. everything that was ahead for me was ahead for me. Um, and I'm also, I also believe people are most tempted to quit moments before their critical breakthrough. Mm -hmm. John, I just, I, I see that pattern in my life as well. And so, you know, this is a season of gratitude. Tony and I, we've had a really good year. We've, we've <laughs> slayed a few dragons in our marriage and we're reaping the benefit of that now. But, you know, I'm sure the tough times will come again, but we're, we're exceptionally grateful for, for the journey. And if you had told that to 41-year-old Carrie, yeah. who was in the ditch that year, he never would have believed you. So uh, let me ask a question that has to do here, not just with the people listening to us, but the people that are in their families or on their teams. Uh, when you talk with leaders, culture is a word that comes up a lot. And uh, the impact of culture, how do you shape culture? To what extent can culture be shaped are, is a huge issue. Um, uh, uh, we all know culture environment network, uh, uh, 
uh, social ecosystems have huge impact. What kind of cultures contribute to burnout? Well, I had to really look in the mirror on that one. I'm so thankful for that question because I realized I was creating an unhealthy culture. Unhealthy leaders create unhealthy cultures. And I was an unhealthy leader. And so my performance addiction, my desire for always more, 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 better, better, better. You know, I always, because I, I, I read management books. Like I went to the conferences, I did the events, I read the books and it was always, you know, great management isn't getting work done through people. It's getting people done through work, but I never really understood it. So now a couple decades later, I'm like, yeah, basically I'm trying to get people done through work. And I've realized that the health of the organization, whatever I'm leading for 20 years, it was the church these days, more day-to-day, it's my company that does the podcast, blogging, speaking books, that kind of stuff. That, that the health of the organization is directly linked to the health of the senior leader. I have a friend of mine who just became a CEO of a private uh, venture capital firm and um, private equity, that's the word I was looking for. Anyway, and I guess the previous CEO was just aloof and toxic and a real driver. And so he's come in and he's, he's been a friend for a number of years. And he said he's just spent the first six weeks going to people, looking them in the eye, shaking their hand, asking their names, asking what their family's like and telling him he wants them to succeed. And like people are in shock. They just, they're like, what, what, what are you doing? Wow. Like, and they think it's fake. Like, okay, when are you waiting to, to stab me? Yep, suspicious. Yeah. And of course, you know, that's just him. But I think as there's, it doesn't matter how big your organization is, there's a direct link between the health of the senior leader or the senior leadership team and the health of the organization. So let me ask you a question about uh, that issue of health. It occurred to me as you were talking, uh, uh, so it's about uh, health and disclosure. Mm. Uh, Vulnerability is a huge topic now. Folks like Brene Brown yeah. write about it in such captivating ways. And I can remember when I was starting out, old guys in ministry back then still had a kind of model for preaching, don't talk about yourself when you preach. Yeah, That pendulum has swung very far. <laughs> and if there's not high levels of vulnerability about difficult stories, you're probably not going to have much currency. Um, but there can be uh, dangers on that side also in terms of disclosure and vulnerability or what Andy Crouch sometimes called pseudo-vulnerability, mm. making people feel like I'm being deeply vulnerable in order to gain more chips. And there's a woman named Kate Bowler. Uh, she's written a book called uh, Everything Happens for a Reason and Lies, Other Lies I Have Loved. Okay. She's a church historian at Duke. She did her dissertation on the prosperity gospel. She's the first person to do a dissertation on the history of the prosperity gospel. Phenomenal. And uh, that got published as a book called Blessed, amazing book. While she was doing that, she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And uh, so this second book, uh, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I Have Loved, is kind of a memoir account of her journey. And she is still being kept alive from six months to six months with some very uh, uh, radical and innovative immunotherapy. Uh, she's just written another book that looks at women in the evangelical church world, particularly pastors' wives, and how often those are the only women that have access to much impact or being known. And she writes about how uh, they kind of have to have a tragic story or a number of them to become famous. And uh, uh, she actually asks one of them, I'm not making this up, uh, she asked her, how many major traumas do you think you will need to be successful? And without batting an eyelash, the woman said four. Oh my goodness. And she wasn't being ironic at all. And it's this odd culture that we live in now where to have a story of, uh, I was abused, I was molested, I had an abortion, I went through a divorce or a bankruptcy, uh, uh, I had an eating disorder, pick what it is. Those actually become stories that in an odd way, because of our little subculture, will lead to somebody being successful. So there almost can be this notion, and you could probably take out the almost, of I want to have these very dramatic stories, and if I have one, I'll probably exaggerate it, because if I can tell it, uh, it will make people 
connect with me, identify with me, and it will make me more successful. So uh, how does a leader think about, on the one hand, appropriate levels of vulnerability, disclosure, yeah. telling my story without... I, I think one of the subjects you get into in your book, which, by the way, for anybody listening, if you have not yet read Carrie's book, uh, Didn't See It Coming, uh, it's very, very helpful in this regard. But I think one of the reasons why church culture, and for our listeners who know what this means, evangelical church culture in particular can breed so much cynicism, yeah. is... Uh, it can be very difficult for us just to be honest. And what you were talking about initially, I wanted to be successful. It wasn't really about not being a lawyer. Right. It's still my ego and the same set of junk, even though I call myself a pastor. And we actually set up a culture in the evangelical world uh, that can idolize celebrities just as yep. much. And then the vehicle to get there can be stories of trauma or building a big church or whatever. How do you share appropriately your internal world without making your own failures and problems things that can be tickets to your success so that you're really just playing the same game? That's a great question and a great ethical question. I would say... Um, I'm, I'm thinking of two things. One is concentric circles. So there are elements of your story. You know, uh, we, are, we are designed to be fully known yes. by God and by a handful of others. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the person who, and we'll talk about, okay, well, what part of your story do you share publicly, yeah. right? But privately, there has to be somebody who knows what you're dealing with and, and what you're struggling with. And then there are, you know, perhaps five rings in that circle so you have your, your inner circle, the people who really know you best, you know, obviously your wife, your family, your closest friends, perhaps counselor, somebody like that. And then people that you share elements of that with, and then the larger crowd or public beyond that. But I, I had to deal with that because my burnout, I didn't talk about it. It was about a three to five year recovery before I could feel, finally say, okay, I think I found a new normal it was probably four or five years after burnout. So that's only like eight years ago. And I didn't talk about it at all during that window because it was just too painful. I would start to break down in tears and I never, I didn't even want to talk about it. Yeah. Like that whole suicide thing. Like when I wrote about it and didn't see it coming, I minimized it. I put that down to like five paragraphs yeah. because it was just like, I didn't want to admit it. It's embarrassing. It's yes. However, the first time I told the story and this is where this filter came out. I was uh, speaking to some leaders in Philadelphia and I had flown down and I thought, I'm going to do a talk on burnout. And I might've been three years into recovery at that point. And I tell my story and the lead pastor of a church of like three or 4,000, I can't remember his name, came up to me. He just said, Carrie, do you need to go see a counselor? Uh, I'm like, uh-oh, that wasn't helpful, was it? <laughs> that was a, it was a little too much bleeding on yeah. the microphone. Yeah. And, uh, and I didn't talk about it again for a couple of years. And then I told it again. And that time with some tears and there were like, thousand or two thousand people in the room and I had just a line of people going thank you nobody's talking about this and I realized the difference was it wasn't my therapy session like there's some stuff you just have to work out in a counselor's yeah. office or on your knees or with that inner circle um, but I had reached a point where I could tell the story where it was helpful and uh, helpful is is the filter I run all my content through yeah. whether that is like and not how is this going to help me but how's it going to help the audience? Like if I tell this story, even on this podcast, am I able to tell it in such a way that somebody who's listening, who's discouraged, who uh, maybe can only see the negative right now realizes, oh my goodness, there is hope on the other side. I need to get help. I should yeah. get help. So it's like, not so much what do I need to say, it's what do they need to hear. Exactly. And and I think that I, I do think social has made that a lot more complicated because you're always tempted. Like, you know, my wife has befriended a couple of girls in their thirties and they came up to our place this summer. And, uh, you know, I began to see, cause I don't have daughters, I have sons. And I began to see the world of social media through the lens of a couple of single 30 year olds. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And they felt the pressure to perform and to have everything perfect. And I'm like, I took a picture that day. We were out on the boat, just having fun on the lake. 
I took a picture of my dinner. We brought like a picnic on the boat and it was like a paper plate with some garbage on it. And I took a picture and I put it on my Insta stories. I'm like, there you go. There's unedited. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but you realize, oh, everybody's dealing with, with, with a different thing. And there can be so much pressure in social media to portray an image. Do you know uh, Lisa Turkhurst? Sure. You know who she is. Yes. But uh, I did some training with Lisa earlier this year. And she had a really, really helpful field. And back to what you were saying about preachers in the old days never shared any of their personal life. That was wrong. She said the older leadership style is what they, I'll get her categories wrong, but here's the big idea, is the tower, that you're the expert, you're, you know, the prophet on a hill and everyone comes to sit at your feet and you hear the pearls of wisdom from John or Carrie or whoever. And, you know, but you never have any problems. Like right. you're, you're the dispenser of great wisdom. And that's sort of the tower voice. Then the next verse is next voice that you can write with or speak with publicly is the teacher voice. Oh my gosh, I was a mess 13 years ago and I burned out, but I've never burned out again and I won't. Now buy my serum and you know, you'll never burn out either. So there's that sort of teacher voice where I had problems, but I don't have any problems anymore. And then the third voice is the in the field. And that is the voice that really, I think, is the voice I want to have the most because it says, yeah, I burned out 13 years ago. And you know what? Last week kind of messed it up again. And let me tell you, and I'm not in the ditch right now and I, I don't have to take a sabbatical, but I don't always get this right. Yeah. And we're just, let me put my arm around you. And we're people who are struggling on the same journey. We're on the same road, trying to learn some lessons. Yeah. And maybe I'm half a step ahead of you and tomorrow I'll be half a step behind you, but we can learn something together. And the bigger your platform is, the more success you have, the harder it is to be that voice in the field. The harder it is to say, you know, it's easy to say I screwed up 10 years ago or five years ago. It's much harder to say, let me tell you what happened the other day. Yeah. And I never want to lose that. And I think that degree of humility in your public voice and your willingness to be able to say, my struggle isn't over and to share that in concentric circles, but in with the crowd, with the public, in a way that is helpful and constructive, I think is very needed in our culture. Yeah, it reminds me of Henry Nouwen and that whole notion of the wounded healer. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's actually out of woundedness that healing comes. My favorite book of Henry Nouwen's is one that almost nobody reads. Uh, I've given it away many, many times. It's called The Genesee Diary. Huh. And he went, this is when, do you know the book? Or I do. Yeah, yeah. When he was just, his academic career was starting to take off. And he went to uh, Genesee country in up, upstate New York and just basically it's his journal for six months. And he talks about the inner battle and I'm like, oh, that's real. That's good. That was 40 years ago, but 45 years ago, but it was incredible. And it's that idea that, yeah, we're all figuring this out together. And I think that there is a hunger for that in the public. I think there is a hunger or a leader who can say with authenticity and honesty, I don't have this all figured out. I'm not going to vomit on you. All right. I have a counselor. I have some friends. Yeah. We're going to go through that together, but I'm, I'm going to let you know, I don't have it all together, but we're moving forward together. That, I don't know how to articulate that well, any better than that, but I think that is a needed voice in our culture because otherwise it's all spin, right? Look at me. I'm so awesome. Yeah. Or, or it's, I'm the master. I've got this by my serum and you'll be fine. Or, you know, it's the, I'm a mess and you're a mess and why don't we be a mess together? <laughs> like, I don't think any of those are helpful. So, uh, uh, I'm wondering, Carrie, if you would do something as a close. Yeah. Uh, you are, among other things, a pastor and there are people who are struggling, who are tired, exhausted, uh, depressed, uh, and they just need to hear a word, a word of hope. And I can remember... Um, uh, Early on, when I started working at a church, I fainted during a sermon twice. and uh, That's an accomplishment. Uh, well, not really because it's a Baptist church. In the charismatic world, it would be an accomplishment. <laughs> Baptist church, you don't get credit for doing that. Uh, it was awful. And so uh, I actually saw a guy who was at the school that I attended then, Arch Hart, who is okay. a really good psychologist. And uh, yeah. one of the distinctions Arch made was between stress and burnout. And so fainting while you preach, that's stress. Yeah. Physiological, blood pressure's up, pulse rate's up, fight or flight syndrome. And stress can usually be eased with just uh, time and relaxation. But he said that uh, prolonged stress can lead to burnout. And burnout's actually a form of depression. 
Mm. Where uh, you lose confidence in yourself, you lose confidence in God, motivation becomes a problem, uh, energy becomes a problem. And uh, my daughter, Laura, and I were just talking about this today. Arch would say, sometimes burnout is God's will for your life because he wants to do a redirection thing. But it's hard to believe that in those moments. And there's folks now who have been through that, who will go through it. Some people who are, are experiencing that kind of valley right now. Carrie, would you say a, a few words to those folks? I just want to encourage you. Um, it's not near, it's bad, but it's not nearly as bad as you think it is. And there's hope. There is hope. I would say, uh, to pull out of what I believe about life and, and about God, um, God knit you together in your mother's womb. I mean, that, that goes back to the psalmist, Psalm 139. He knows you, he loves you. Uh, one of the greatest challenges in life is to be completely known and completely loved. And I know that when I burned out, I was just so terrified uh, to talk about it because I felt like I failed. You know, that, that performance addiction, it just, you know, wow, I can't even perform anymore. And what I didn't realize in that moment was that I was still fully loved. That's what I couldn't, couldn't hear, that it was independent of what I could accomplish, that simply existing, existing, breathing, God still loved me. So coming out of that, what I'm trying to do, I don't get it right every day, is I'm trying to realize, and I knew this theologically, I just didn't know how to live it, is, is that my work, is a response to that love. It doesn't earn me that love. So I would say you're loved. You're loved very deeply, very profoundly. You're not alone. And I'll be praying for you. When we hang up this mic, I'll, I will say a prayer for you. And uh, I want you to tell somebody today. And I want you to stick around till tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. And there was something I, I kept, you know, <laughs> I had a friend of mine, a really good friend, uh, his name's Jeff. He's, he lets me share this story, but he came up a few years ago and he was at a mega church leading, you know, almost 10,000 people. And he was going through a season of burnout. Now his dad had died earlier in the year and so on. And so we're good friends. We're texting about it. And he's like, you went through this. And so he flew up to Canada on day 15 of a 30 day sabbatical he took. And he was so despondent when he got off the plane. He just said, Carrie, I'm 15 days into my sabbatical and I'm not better yet. Like this, I'm like, Jeff, not that's, that's not how it's going to work. I don't, I don't think so. And, and uh, we spent a couple of days together and I, it, it was in that moment I realized, you know what? If God, like let God go deep, go deep into whatever this dysfunction or this season is, go deep. Because if God wants to go deep, it's because he wants to take you far. And I think God had to get to the root of that misassociation and a few others in my life because I didn't know ahead would be a podcast and books and flying around the world and speaking. Like I had no idea. My life was so much smaller than it is now, but that either wouldn't have happened or I would have collapsed under it or misstewarded it or something. And so he went to the root and he continues from time to time to go to the root. It's like, ah, oh, you got to deal with this now, don't you, Newhoff? And it's like, yes, I guess I do. Um, but let him go deep. And, and that, is, that is love. Like that is what love does. And so uh, you are deeply loved. And I know you can't feel it right now, but you are. So just hang in there. Well, that word's going to be a gift for everybody listening. You are loved. And Carrie Newhoff, you are loved. Thank you for doing this. I hope we get to do it again real soon. John, this is a joy. Thank you. I just find time with John so rich. So uh, we did spend a week together. I did some staff training for him and uh, he's got an amazing team at Menlo. And one of my favorite moments, I texted John and just said, hey, you want to get together for breakfast? I just got after breakfast, I got some questions for you. And it was sort of the final day. And I just said, so, you know, one of them wasn't the only one, but I was like, dude, what's next for you? And he said, you know what? Over the next 20 years, and you know, he's still going to lead at his church and so on. He says, I really want to focus on who I'm becoming. And I thought, you know, talk about life goals. Isn't that amazing? I just love that. John, thank you. Thanks for letting me share that. Uh, this is uh, directly from his podcast, What Were You Thinking? Make sure you subscribe to that. And of course, because this is on my show, we've got transcripts and all that stuff for you that you can find at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 307. 
Make sure you check out the Red Letter Challenge before 2019 slips away on you and uh, use it for one of your 2020 series or initiatives. You can find out more at redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry. And remember the high impact workplace is open, but not for long. It is uh, gonna close early next week. It's a course I'm so excited about. Uh, I'll share why eight to four doesn't work anymore, why the flexible workplace is the future workplace and how to attract and keep high capacity leaders, especially young leaders, when they can go anywhere they want. Uh, so you can sign up at the highimpactworkplace.com while there's still time. And uh, guys, also check out leadlikeneverbefore.com slash 10 million if you want to be one of the five listeners. I fly into Nashville to hang out and do a personal leadership development day with in 2020. That's to celebrate 10 million downloads on this show. So you know we have new episodes. If you subscribe, you get them for free. Larry Osborne is up next. And here's an excerpt from my conversation with the guru, Larry Osborne. I recently got attacked for a decision that I made. Uh, and in reality, man, we had sponsors on something calling, all kinds of things like, mm. what's up with this? Well, it was 44, 46 tweets. And it was by a group of about 30 people. <laughs> but when you go, I happen to know who some of them were. You go and look, they've got one, one guy had 450 followers in Australia. Yeah. You know, so you like most people doing that are eating Cheetos, living in their mom's basement, <laughs> don't have a real job. Yeah. But in this culture of clickbait, they've been elevated to having power. So that's why I say the middle has disappeared as a voice, but uh -huh. not as a heart. So you're right. All the influence is on the extremes. On the right or the left, yeah. Yeah. Neither party, look in, in the states, neither party can put forward a moderate because their own party pushes to the extreme. So that's next time, guys. And of course, we've got an Ask Carrie. So the question this time around, thank you, those of you who listen all the way to the end, which is a lot of you. A young leader asked, he said, what are some, un and I thought this was a great question, what are some unwritten rules of leadership? What are just some unwritten rules of leadership? Like I'm a young leader. I want to get in here. And uh, are there any like things I should know about that no one's talking about? I want to share with you four. Okay. Rule number one, uh, your results earn you a right to an opinion. Okay. We live in an age where nobody is short of an opinion, but I really think, and I'm just thinking like a boss here. I'm putting my, my boss hat on. You know, when I pay attention to you, when you produce results. If you've got an opinion and basically I'm trying to motivate you all the time or get you to hit deadlines, I'm not very interested in what you think. And I know that sounds harsh, but just think about that. That's human behavior. You know who I listen to? People who produce results. So if you want the right to an opinion that gets respected, produce results. Be spectacularly good at what you do. I talk about some of that in the high impact workplace, by the way. And then there's three other tips that I've coached young leaders with that I find so helpful. Helpful for me as a leader, also helpful for young leaders. By the way, uh, that bit about opinion, not just for young leaders, that's for all of us. You can be 55 and like have an opinion on everything. If you're not producing results, people don't respect you. But anyway, the three other rules are uh, and these are guidelines. It's like, you want to know how to succeed at what you do? Three little disciplines that I need to master and you can master and all leaders should master. Proactivity, communication, and responsibility. And it's often lacking. Proactivity. Don't sit around waiting for someone to tell you what to do. Uh, maybe you have no idea what to do, but at that point, you go to your boss, knock on the door and say, excuse me, not 100% sure on what to do. What would you like me to do next? I've got some extra bandwidth. That really impresses leaders, okay? That's an unwritten rule. Be proactive. Um, sometimes you do know exactly what to do and then just go ahead and do it. Just go ahead and say, you know what? I got done a little early today, so I went ahead and I started this project and I cleaned this up and I fixed that. Woo, proactivity a very marketable skill. Number two, communication, communication. Man, I'll tell you, um, <laughs> you cannot over communicate. Communication ruins marriages or lack of communication does. It ruins families and it destroys friendship and it can ruin companies. I always tell my team, communicate, communicate, communicate. If you over communicate, I will tell you, you are over communicating. I have never yet had a staff member over communicate. So 
If you're like, should my boss know about this? Yes, update your boss. Should your coworkers know about it? Yes, be the one who says, hey, to summarize our meeting today, one, two, three, four, huge, huge, huge advantage. And then uh, the third is, or fourth, I guess, in this list is responsibility. Just take responsibility. It, that goes when things go right and things go wrong. When something goes wrong, uh, don't let your boss discover it or your coworkers discover it. Um, knock on the door, send an email, uh, jump on a video call, send a text and say, you know what? I blew something today, made a mistake, my bad. I'm owning it. I'm fixing it up. Uh, when something's uncertain, take responsibility. So those are the three things that I think really, nobody talks about them, but they are unwritten rules or advantages you can build in for yourself in the workplace. So um, your results will earn you a right to have your opinion heard. So just produce results. Otherwise, opinions from people who do not contribute to the mission, um, yeah, they just don't get the respect that people who produce a lot tend to get. And then proactivity, communication, responsibility. Really, really hope this helps. And if you've got a question, head on over. We're going to tackle uh, Taylor's from San Diego in an upcoming episode. Another one uh, next week from... Jason, who wants to know what's the one thing a leader can do when beginning in ministry. So we're going to do a lot of that. And um, anyway, if you got a question, just drop it on the socials at hashtag AskCarrie. Me and my team, we look for them all the time. We collect them and we answer them as best we can. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for 10 million downloads. I hope this has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.